every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 8th of February. Just two days left in the Year of the Rabbits. The Year of the Dragon arrives on Saturday. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Beijing has removed the chairman of its stock market regulator, the China Securities and Regulatory Commission, Yi Human, as authorities battle to stabilise the country's plunging stock market. In a statement, the government said the party's top leadership body, the Central Committee, was appointing Wu Qing, a veteran banker, as CSRC party secretary and chairman to replace Mr Yi. He is nicknamed the Broker Butcher for his crackdown on traders. Mr Wu Qing was previously the acting vice mayor of China's major financial hub, Shanghai, and served nearly two years as chairman of the Shanghai Stock Exchange. China's Ministry of Commerce said it would encourage domestic electric vehicle companies to cooperate with foreign businesses as the country manages fallouts from a trade dispute with the EU over the sector. The ministry said in a policy document on Wednesday that it will guide domestic EV companies to communicate and cooperate with foreign counterparts. The Bank of Thailand maintained its key interest rate steady at a decade high of 2.5% yesterday, as expected, extending its pause for the second straight meeting. The majority of the policymakers deemed the current decision appropriate to support long-term sustainable growth. And ahead of the meeting, Prime Minister Shreta Tavasan called for the central bank to lower rates, saying a cut of 25 basis points wouldn't stir inflation. Alibaba has pledged to step up share repurchases after revenue growth slowed more than analysts expected in the fourth quarter. The Chinese tech group on Wednesday announced that sales for the three-month period rose just 5% year-on-year to 36 billion US dollars. Net income dropped 77% as Alibaba wrote down the value of some businesses and the market value of its investment portfolio sank. Alibaba has also put on hold the planned listing of its logistics arm Canio, citing market conditions, and the company said it would increase its share buyback program by 25 billion US dollars. On today's program, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet, with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. And please take a look at my Asian Daily Newsletter, which accompanies this show and contains more information about the topics we're talking about today. And you'll find that on my website at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street's Wednesday, US stocks rose with tech groups leading a broad rally that sent the S&P 500 to a record high close. The S&P 500 was up 0.8% at 4,995, hovering just a few points below the milestone 5,000-point mark. The Dow rallied 156 points, or 0.4%, to close at 38,677. That's also a new all-time high. And the Nasdaq Composite jumped 1% to settle at 15,757. The 10-year Treasury yield closed three basis points higher at 4.12%. The US dollar index was just 0.1% lower at 104.05. The yen saw mild weakness, dropping 0.2% to 148.16 yen versus the dollar. And offshore yuan saw weakness amid more support measures out of China and ahead of China CPI and PPI data today. It ended the day around about 7.21 renminbi per dollar. Gold ended the day unchanged at $2,035 an ounce. Oil prices rose Wednesday as Israel's Prime Minister 
Benjamin Netanyahu vowed to press on with the war in Gaza, diminishing hopes for a ceasefire agreement. The Brent crude oil contract for April gained 0.8% to settle at $79.21 a barrel. Hong Kong equities paired back early gains amid growing doubts about the effectiveness of planned measures by Beijing to support its financial markets. The Hang Seng Index shed 55 points or half a percent after rising as much as 1.7% earlier in the session and it closed at 16,082. The Tech Index fell 1.6%. And after some wild swings on Friday and Monday, China's CSI 300 climbed 1%. That's added to its 3.5% gain on Tuesday. The CSI 1000, which includes smaller companies, jumped 4.5% higher yesterday following a 7% surge on Tuesday. Futures markets pointing to a small decline for Hong Kong stocks at the open. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 40 points lower at around about 16,040 this morning. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Morning, good morning. And also with us in a chilly Hong Kong this morning is Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet. Morning, uh, Sunil. Good morning. So as you heard there in the introduction, Beijing's removed the chairman of its stock market regulator, the Chinese Securities and Regulatory Commission, Yi Human, as authorities battle to stabilise the country's plunging stock market. It was a surprise move that may foreshadow some more forceful measures by Xi Jinping's government to end the rout in the country's $8 trillion stock market. Mr Yi took the mantle of the CSRC in 2019 and he was tasked to undertake a spate of sweeping capital market reforms. In a terse statement, the government said the party's top leadership body was appointing Wu Qing, who is a veteran banker, as CSRC party secretary and chairman to re- uh, replace Mr Yi, his nickname the Broker Butcher, for his crackdown on traders. And he was previously the acting vice mayor of Shanghai and served nearly two years as chairman of the Shanghai Stock Exchange. And the move comes after it was reported that President Xi Jinping was discussing the stock market with financial regulators, stoking optimism that there will be more concerted efforts to stop a slump in the market. So, Andrew, what do you read into this? Well, it's typical reaction to actually killing the messenger rather than killing what has created the message. And, of course, this will mean absolutely nothing because whoever takes on, clearly, his task will be to impose more restrictions on the buying and selling. There is uh, there is no way in a market like the stock market that you can actually go and force people to buy. On the other hand, we have seen that the China's uh, sovereign uh, fund actually was tasked to buy. And of course, my reaction is, is where they're going to find the money for that. And the answer is, of course, the government will give it to them. So in other words, we're having something which is by no means unique, and uh, let's not be in a hurry to cast the first stone on the Chinese government intervening actively in its own stock market. So has the Japanese government, and they bought actually stocks and shares as well as ETFs. So you know, Western capitalist governments are not at all the ones that are likely to be doing this, and therefore the China should not be doing that. Now, whether this is going to be a solution. Oh, God, I sound like an economist. It remains to be seen. 
And uh, given that uh, the gloom and doom from the outside, I hasten to ask, as to what is happening to the Chinese economy, which is over-exaggerated because it is still growing at 5%, but it sort of lacks kind of oomph. Mm. And I'm afraid uh, firing the boss of the stock market, it's not the kind of thing that will give it an oomph. Mm. Sunil, what, what's your Let's interpretation? What next. They have already taken several months. Yep. Sorry, sorry, Andrew, didn't mean to cut you off there. As Sunil, what's your so, interpretation of this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know if you step back and look at it, the the valuation of companies is really based on the performance of the company, the macro environment, and sentiment. Um, I think from from all counts, the performance of the company, especially the private sector companies, especially companies focused on exports, is quite okay. They you know exports are up, they're performing quite well. Production seems to be fine. Um, so the companies themselves seem to be okay. The issue of macro environment, of course, is there. But as Andrew said, the, the fact that the sentiment is so weak and the momentum is uh, downwards is actually making this worse than probably the fundamentals uh, would would allow, would, would, sh would show. So the the government now is trying to handle the sentiment uh now you know whether they're able to handle the negative sentiment with these moves is questionable and like andrew says we will see um but the key is is changing the sentiment and the momentum in the market uh which um in a given last couple of days momentum seems to have been on the upswing i'm not sure sure about the sentiment and let's see what uh, what the new regulator says and whether he's able to bring more confidence back into the market I'm wondering, Andrew and Sunil, is this a situation where the regulator really needs to do anything? After all, the market's been going down, but it hasn't really been particularly disorderly. The market hasn't crashed. Um, you can still trade in it. You know, you can buy and sell if you want to. There is liquidity um, there. Um, yes, it's been going down consistently for a while now, but that's not really the regulator's fault, is it? Um, it it's done its job, which is to make sure there's an orderly market. For sure, it has to crack down on things that disadvantage certain types of investors, whether it be insider trading or other things. But um, this this is not a particularly abnormal market, is it? Absolutely. And I will raise something which is by no means uh, specific to the China's reaction to the stock market. And that is uh, the insistence of stopping sorting the market. Now, invariably, people forget. And if I was teaching accounting 101, I will fail them collectively is that each time there is a, a seller okay, that wants to sell forward, there is always, always a buyer. So I don't know why we jump on the seller that is short selling and not on the buyer that allows this to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it is the, the naivete that comes to, uh, to, to the specifics within market and what is considered to be speculation as opposed to healthy trading always leaves me absolutely astounded because it's based on a fundamental misunderstanding called double entry bookkeeping. Mm. It's no Nobel, Nobel Prize winning. Okay, so yes, I agree with you. Uh, the, a regulator right now should uh, perhaps not interfere with double entry bookkeeping. Mm. It's as simple as that. I mean, Sunil, I've never really understood why um, regulators or markets get so hung up by short selling. I mean, if I believed that a stock is undervalued, um, it's my right to go in surely and buy it 
And I've got to deliver cash to do that. If I don't have the cash, I can go and borrow it. Likewise, if I feel as a stock is overvalued, I'll sell it. I've got to deliver the stock. And if I don't have it, I'll borrow it. I, I don't really see what, what the difference is between the two scenarios. I think as Andrew mentioned, you know, it's it's not unusual for uh, regulators or for the governments to come in. And the reason they come in is because sometimes sentiment gets ahead of fundamentals, right? And people become too bearish to be too negative. They start having a doomsday kind of scenario. And so that's when the government needs to come in and say, look, hold who, on, let's take a pause. That's why you have triggers, for example, in the stock market. Sometimes who decides that? Who, who decides that, bear, that market sentiment has got too bearish and things are going down too fast? And, and why don't governments get equally concerned then if things get too bullish and, and you know, markets go soaring. What, who, who's the decision maker here? Well, in the case of China, it's, you know, it's clearly coming government, right? From, <laughs> and, and coming from Beijing, right? And they feel that the fundamentals don't justify the kind of valuations that are in the market, that they need to just, you know, halt this sort of wave of selling that's happening. And maybe then uh, they take actions which will change the confidence so that's it's it's more i think their view is let's pause this try to you know break this kind of downward slide uh, let's take some measures which change the sentiment and then maybe we'll be fine now it's questionable but it's happened in the past you know it's happened during the financial crisis uh, it happens when stock markets uh, are selling a stock is selling the the stock exchange would stop trading in a particular particular stock and then normally when they start trading it goes down and suddenly there's a spike up again so i think it's not unusual uh, you know whether there is reason for the government uh, sorry for the for the market to change sentiment is questionable, and we'll have to see what the government comes up with. Mm. So, is the, the the issue of having uh, trigger points in the market? In other words, if it falls more than five uh, percent within ten minutes of, of trading, uh, there is very good sound economic reasons behind that. It's called a symmetricity of information. In other words, it stops it whilst the specific information which is driving particular trades becomes quite well diffused. People understand why this is happening and therefore may very well change their mind. It's not a matter that I'll stop it. In a way, you know, if I jump from the 20th floor and somebody says, don't worry, Andrew, on the 10th floor, uh, they will actually, we will stop the fall, okay, for a few minutes and says, oh, that's absolutely great, but they will continue to fall afterwards. You know, it has, it has to have a, a reason. And the reason is this asymmetricity. I'm telling you, Peter, a lot of it is so purely stupid, basic 0101 financial economics that it makes my eyes water and my, my, my steam coming out of my ears because this is, this is no, no, no Nobel Prize winning uh, nuclear physics or quantum physics uh, stuff. It's very, very simple and still completely not understood. So is the CSRC now going to be judged its uh, efficiency and its the success and the effectiveness of the regulator? Is it now going to be judged on whether or not the market goes up? I, one, one imagines so, but uh, but again, I will be, I will be the first one not to cast a stone to China and says, look, they're doing stupid things. In other words, all major markets have done the same. Okay, the Japanese are absolutely famous for doing very strange things with their markets, and nobody's complaining. Why? Well, because they're capitalists. It's perfectly all right. But because the Chinese Communist Party is not, in inverted commas, a capitalist party, perhaps they really don't understand the things that they are going, they're, they're getting it all wrong. That's not, that's not it at all. It is simply that there are certain things that have been tried in the past and they just don't work. Mm. It's, just, it's just simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, the, the, 
the the purpose from Beijing's actions is really to see how they can restore confidence. They feel that they are, you know, they're taking measures which should give confidence to the com- uh, to the to the markets, but obviously that's that's not working. And uh, like Andrew said, you know, they sh- they're shooting the mass- messenger, and they hope that the messenger of the message, uh, the new one, will be able to communicate it better. Mm. So then, is it going to work? Is, is it going to restore confidence? And, and, and you know, are people now going to say, hey, Chinese stocks, they're a real value trade here. Um, we need to go in and buy. I think the market is waiting for signals. Uh, you know, they keep talking about this big bazooka, big, you know, uh, stimulus or big action. Um, and what the government has been doing is uh, is, is steps, but somehow the message of the fact that the government is serious about trying to protect the market is not getting through. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, will they will depend upon how um, the new head of CSRC is able to communicate to the market that the government ser- is serious and is taking actions which the gov- which in the past have been seen as negative uh, by the government, uh, by the market, and whether they'll be able to reverse some of those actions, right? Some of those sort of anti-market, uh, free market sentiment, uh, uh, sentiment or so actions that were taken by the government over the last three or four years. Mm. Here's something for nothing, uh, Peter. Uh, uh, let's say a, a classical SWOT piece exercise would be to say, what in the last three or four years has caused uh, confidence to wane? Okay, let's make them a list. And uh, some of the lists will be caused by nature. That was COVID. Some of the lists uh, might include items that uh, were man-made. It was positively, positive. Sorry, it was policy actions that induced them. Then uh, you put down your list and then you say, all right, how can we address it? We cannot fight nature, but we can definitely correct policy decisions that were either hastily or badly done. And produce this big list and even with uh, imponderables, and say, this is the way we are going to to address it, and this is our timetable. Now, it's terribly easy for me to say that, because that means that uh, it will be politically correct and politically acceptable uh, to lay out what has been or has not been done in the past, and also click and tick the items uh, of what you're going to take, what will you be doing. Look at the trouble Powell is getting by not saying when he's going to cut interest rates. It's time he appears. He says, well, the market did not run, but I'm not going to cut. Oh, yes, perhaps next time we will definitely be considering cutting. So it isn't just specific to, to the Chinese. It will be very, very easy to blame the Communist Party for everything that goes wrong. And that will be completely unfair and also not true. But it requires the kind of, uh, let's say, discipline that perhaps... It has not yet been exercised in China because uh, the markets there have got a relatively short time period. They have a relatively short life. We're talking perhaps about 20 years since the Chinese equity market became a real force in the world. It's not uh, the, the Dow Jones that uh, has been there since the, since the 1930s. Not easy. And, and, yeah, may, and, you know, I would posit the view that maybe the government also didn't really understand how some of their actions could have such a big impact on uh, on the evaluations of companies. I think that's one thing that uh, they probably underestimated uh, and some corrective action needs to be taken about that. 
Well, it isn't the way in which traditionally, uh, and, and it works in other markets, that you get investors to regain confidence and regain the trust in the market is that companies basically need to sell themselves on their earnings and on their results, not these promises, some of which are, you know, pie in the sky stuff, promises of future growth, um, but sell themselves on uh, the fact that they're making earnings, you know, you've got good companies like Tencent and Alibaba still growing. Um, they've got a lot of healthy free cash flow. The best way to uh, to, to boost confidence is to start paying dividends um, and to do share buybacks. Wouldn't that work in China just if they were allowed to do it, of course? Uh, wouldn't that be the traditional way of doing it? And would that work if, if they were allowed to do so by the regulator? It is damned if you do, damned if you don't. If uh, Alibaba, in the same way that it was ordered to break up, and it was broken up by the state, okay, and that, uh, let's say, it was, it was felt uncomfortable in the market. In the same way, if Alibaba is effectively ordered to pay dividends, it will not look good. If Alibaba pays dividends because they want to, as opposed to because they have been asked to, okay, he will say, all right, he'll pay dividends for this year, but... Uh, then what? It will carry on paying dividends indefinitely until the markets go up. In other words, it is the kind of uh, of a ratchet that once you enter into it, you have to be very, very acutely aware that once you've done something, it becomes very difficult to undo it without, as you say, people losing confidence. So in other words, if you turn around and say all um, Chinese companies more than with a market capitalization, with a market capitalization more than X billion, okay, as from tomorrow, they should have not less than a 10% distribution of dividends. Yeah, that will that will look really odd. And I don't think this is something that uh, the markets will be absolutely delighted to do this. But yeah, it, but I think, you know, falling short of doing something so uh, dictatorial, I think, or directive, they can actually come together and, and, and have a sort of a joint force saying, look, you know, we want to support these companies, we want to help them grow and, and get into a discussion saying, what is it that's been hindering your growth or is at least, uh, you know, creating the situation where the, the market is considering uh, your valuations uh, to be too high and, and selling down. So what can we do um, to, to restore confidence? So if they bring these companies together and say, look, this is a joint kind of uh, um, war that we need to handle, then you will see a change in sentiment. I think right now what's been happening is from Beijing, basically they've been passing this stricture saying, you know, no more short selling, you can't do this, you can't do this. Um, and so some sort of joint action between the government and uh, the key private sector companies would be really helpful because right now the view is the government doesn't support uh, private companies, even though they've made some statements uh, at the edges, there's just that view and, and they need to reverse that view. Mm, that's, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, if, you, if they were to answer the question that you've asked, what is it that's causing these problems? It's government policies. That's what's done it. Um, and the best way for the government to reverse that is surely not meddling in the market, by, but by getting out of the way and letting companies grow and be entrepreneurial and not keep having these out of the blue crackdowns on, on things that they're doing, stopping them listing overseas if, if they want to. Um, that, that would be the answer, wouldn't it? Well, that would be one answer. I mean, the other answer is that, look, let's have some kind of managed market uh, 
you know activity and so while you know free market may not be something that uh, beijing would uh, be supportive of they would like a more structured managed market moving in the direction that the country requires and 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 rather than just make that statement they need to 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 put some policy statements uh, policy measures showing that that they they don't want to kill the private sector uh, for the benefit of the country they they want to uh, boost it for the benefit of the country so i think you, you know one answer is free markets tend that the markets evolve and the other uh, answer is you know, how do we manage and and um, curate the market participants to help them grow again and mm. build this confidence um so not a total hands off kind of approach which is what the party prefers so i think that's where they need to find the right uh right uh, measures or right balance okay andrew let me get your thoughts on on the economy we're in this strange period now where we're coming up to a, a holiday um we're not going to get any economic activity data in the month of february so now people are going to turn their attention to the two sessions in march which is where we'll get um the the government's forecasts about economic growth. It's almost like the Chinese New Year has come at a bad time, hasn't it? Because um, rather than giving a boost to the economy, because consumer sentiments is so bad, this might not work. Manufacturing is going to close down for a while. Um, you know, there's going to be um, a bit of a slump in activity, isn't there? So what, what is the outlook going to be going forward from here as we start well, a new I'll Lunar you, New Year? I'll give you a slightly abstruse answer, but I'll, I'll come directly and give you a complete answer to that. I did my PhD on the Soviet Union, and I was something of, a, of an expert on the management of uh, communist economies. This has nothing to do with China, because Soviet China never even approximated what was happening in the Soviet Union. But in general, when it came to statistical periods that would already have a kind of an effect, the Russian joke was seasonally adjusted. February was a cold month. February is the worst month in <laughs> Russia. It's <laughs> minus 3,000 degrees. What do you mean seasonally adjusted? You can adjust all you want during the season. You're still going to freeze. So seasonally adjusted February is always awkward, okay, mm -hmm. because then we get double figures in March. So you really don't know what happened to the hiccup in between, and that also changes the base effect. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a Adoration that uh, that this happens, and therefore I don't keep my fingers crossed on uh, on saying, well, you know, we're going to have two sessions at the end of February, and this is going to explain quite a lot of things. We will be well into March uh, before we begin to to get uh, to get some idea of what's actually happening. Mm. But that's life, mm. and uh, we know also that February invariably has a base effect on all the numbers we have. If numbers were frozen, they were low, then uh, next time it might be higher than they would have been had we not have had Chinese New Year. But of course, it's no good asking the Chinese to put the Chinese New Year at Christmas because then we're going to have a Christmas effect. So we'll never finish. I mean, <laughs> otherwise, yes. if you abolish, the, you abolish the holiday altogether. No, I mean, so it was it was well known that these holidays are taking place. I think, I, I don't think there's that much of an issue. I mean, one should keep in mind that growth is still three to five percent right so you and and in an economy where the population is not growing so basically the per capita income is increasing so in that sense uh, i think uh, you know this is something that markets would have factored in so it's not as if it's unusual um the important thing is 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 using this time to 
change the sentiment to make it, you know, as you get into the year of the dragon, make it a uh, an opportunity to change the sentiment and make it more positive. Mm. Well, there was one piece of data that came out today that is interesting, uh, not economic activity data, but the US trade deficits. Uh, it narrowed uh, quite considerably, down 19% now in 2022. What was interesting is the goods trades deficit with China. It shrunk to the smallest total since 2010. Um, and on the converse of that, trade gaps have hit between the US have hit records with Mexico, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Mexico, South Korea, Taiwan and India. And for the first time in 17 years, China's been dethroned as the United States' top source of imports. It's been overtaken uh, by Mexico almost overtaken by Canada um, as well. And China also saw its share of American imports decline by about 14%. Uh, that's the lowest level in 20 years. I'll tell you, the answer is very, very simple. It is a huge conspiracy. The major, the major economy that actually sucks in all, uh, all our exports. So there you go. That, that's the answer. It is a conspiracy, Peter. Of course it is. <laughs> Sunil? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the... To be, to be a bit serious, is that I, I think there's there's definite anecdotal evidence that uh, some of the exports from Mexico into US um, have components of inputs from China. Mm. So if you look at the growth of uh, inputs from uh, China into Mexico, that's gone up quite a lot. And so it's almost a zero-sum game if you add the differential. So, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely... Uh, stuff that's going to warehouses in Mexico, being stored there and then being supplied from Mexico into um, into the US and then showing as Mexican imports under NAFTA, et cetera. So the, the, you know, it's not as if suddenly the, the local economic activity in, in Mexico has suddenly gone through the roof. China's worked um, it out, so. haven't they? They've worked out that uh, invest in Mexico, in production facilities in Mexico, get your goods into the US and they count as Mexican exports instead. Exports, exactly, exactly. It is a narrowing of China's deficit, okay, is, is very good news for Biden, and it's bad news for Trump. A widening of the trade deficit, okay, it will be very good news for Trump. So Trump, I'm just joking, will come around and say, see, I told you, they will do anything to steal the election from me, including cooking the numbers, so that by the time we come on the 5th of uh, November, okay, the Chinese trade surplus stroke deficit is not going to be an issue anymore. And me deciding to put 60% input duties on China, like 60%. Why not 75 or 80? I mean, make it a, a, a nice round number. It's not going to be something that I would I would claim. Now, uh, you know, once you, once you go down the conspiracy uh, road, uh, it's very, very difficult to stop. I'm not suggesting one moment that he will. But as, as Peter started reading all out, I thought, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Should we be taking seriously this threat of, well, Donald Trump says at least 60% tariffs on all Chinese goods. Yes. And he's talking about 10% tariffs on everything else, in fact, a blanket 10% tariff on every single import into the US. Peter, absolutely, yes. And because he's a magician with uh, abusing double-entry bookkeeping, he's going to tell you that he's going to raise a hell of a lot of money okay, by imposing tariffs, which then he's going to give it back in tax cuts, forgetting to show that the majority of the goods that are going to be taxed are the kind of goods that the poor Americans buy. You know, sports shoes, uh, jumpers, jackets, clothes, uh, cheap plastic stuff, all of which is going to go up by 60%. They will buy less, or they will buy some, they will still pay a high price, and then they will be given back the money in terms of a tax cut. Great. Not for the wealthy. The wealthy don't buy... Don't buy uh, 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 
counterfeit Nike shoes or cheap sports shoes, they buy the actual stuff. So it really doesn't matter to them. Yeah, actually, I do believe that he actually means it. And I do believe that uh, if he can get the Congress to, to pass it, he will do it. 100%. I'm, wor- I'm worried about much worse things, actually. I mean, that's, that's the least yeah. of my worry, but that's nothing. I think that's uh, that's valid. That's what I was uh, I, I would support. Andrew said, you know, without talking about this specific issue, I think that generally the the tone that he's coming back with is um, uh, you know could could have a, a major impact in terms of what happens to the world economy, uh, especially because he he's got the support of the government of of the party and of congressmen uh, in his own party. And so, you know, what what can actually happen. Um, you know, is is could be quite startling. It could also. I don't, I don't mind telling you. I'm, I'm already making a list of uh, of what to go short and what to go long. Okay, on uh, on on Trump's uh, presidency. And isn't funny? He has already said he's going to get rid of power. Mm, I mean, well, that's another thing, isn't it? Because he doesn't cut interest rates. Incidentally, the Fed has an impeccable reputation of not cutting interest rates before an election or raising them after. In other words, the election periods and actions of Fed have got virtually a zero correlation. It's not true that the Fed favors one party or the other when it comes to that. So I think it was grossly unfair, okay, because it just doesn't, it's not backed by a fact, but who cares about facts, okay? Mm. The thing is that Powell doesn't yeah. do what Trump tells him to do. Do you want to give us a clue as to what's on your long and short list in the case of a Trump presidency? Uh, yeah, absolutely. First, of course, it's going to devastate American exports of, uh, of both electronics and, of course, telephones. And telephones coming, being produced in China, being imported to the United States. So it's going to be all a big negative. Okay, for, for Apple and possibly Microsoft, uh, it's going to be a big plus for anything that has to do with climate-related production. In other words, electronic, electric photovoltaic panels, uh, wind turbines. Okay all of which is not high in Trump's list, okay, because he doesn't, he, he thinks that the climate issue is, is also a Chinese conspiracy. So he's not going to be particularly upset about that. But these are things that are going to be taxed quite heavily. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, he might not just stop in, uh, in, uh, in, in the States, but the States is going to be the, the first one. I can finesse it a great deal more, okay, but uh, I will be overstepping possibly my compliance restriction, which is I cannot say in public what to buy and what to sell. I can only say big, broad venues. Okay, so electronics is not going to be a happy, it's not going to be a happy pussycat. So Neil, final word to you. I mean, if, if this all happens, it's going to devastate the, the, the global trading system, isn't it? It's just going to completely fracture it. Yeah, I don't think it'll be that radical. I think it's just a series of measures giving a direction of, you know, away from free markets, which is what you were talking about, and in, in getting more into into government interference into the uh, trade flows and the markets, that would be negative. So I, I, I you know, I think uh, we have to see uh, how things emerge over the next eight months. What kind of statements he uh, he makes, and also what happens uh, to the Congress and the Senate, uh, whether uh, the Republicans have um, power uh, majority in each of them, either of them. So if they get a, a super majority, then then this could be quite um, quite interesting. Well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning, and I wish you a very happy Year of the Dragon. You heard there Sunil Kashap, who's director of FinMet, and Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. 
I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting over in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, just to continue with that discussion with our earlier guests about um, tariffs and uh, and the, uh, the the trade surplus between the US uh, and China, what do you make of uh, Donald Trump's threats to impose at least 60% tariffs on all Chinese imports? Do you think uh, he's serious about this? Well, we have to take him at his word. Uh, re- remember in his first presidential campaign when he said he would uh, uh, take the United States out of the then TPP on his first day in office, he actually did it. Mm. And, and then... A few years later, he did raise tariffs on a significant number of Chinese goods. So whether it's 60 percent or some smaller number, I think we have to take him at his word that uh, should he be elected president, he's going to look to uh, impose higher tariffs on goods from China and possibly goods from other places as well. And he's made that very clear and he'll continue to make that clear in the coming months of the presidential campaign. Do you think he'll take into account the fact that uh, the U.S. trade um, deficit with um, with China is narrowed quite considerably, according to the data that was out today? And for the first time in 17 years, China's been dethroned as the United States' top source of imports. It's now Mexico. Canada's almost overtaken China as well. This trade deficit seems to be going into reverse if you look at those figures. Well, I don't think it's uh, Trump's style to give credit to someone else. So he's not going to give credit to the Biden administration for the for what that data reflected with Mexico's, uh, uh, you know, the, the dollar value of Mexico's imports exceeding China's for the first time in about two decades. Uh, I, I think, uh, again, we have to take him at his word that he's going to continue to say that uh, trade with China is a problem. It's dangerous, uh, causes U.S. job losses, et cetera, et cetera. We, we know the usual talking points. Uh, so. I think he will still uh, take very tough action on China. Uh, and uh, you know, he'll say, I, I delivered on a campaign promise. Mm, but uh, he's not going to be happy either, is he, about a surge in imports from Mexico? So presumably he might have to deliver on his promise to put 10% tariffs on Mexican imports. He might. And someone will, when someone explains to him that some of those factories in Mexico are owned by China, it'll probably Chinese companies, it'll probably only spur, <laughs> uh, spur him uh, further or make him more certain of that, that the higher tariffs on Chinese goods and possibly Mexican goods are the sort are, are, are the path that he should go down. I mean, this is really going to uh, fracture the global trading system, isn't it? It is going to send it into sort of competing blocks, all putting tariffs on each other. President Trump is certainly not the candidate for more free trade uh, or for uh, an endorsement of the existing international trade architecture. Uh, I think uh, we'll see more of the same of his first term where he threatens action or takes action, not, not only against non-friendly countries, but also against even friendly countries like Korea and Japan and Canada, as he did in his first term. But what, where does the Republican Party fit into this? Because the Republican Party is historically and traditionally free trade. It doesn't like tariffs. Uh, it wants low taxes. That's always been uh, the, 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 the traditional view, the pro-trade, pro-business view of the Republican Party. It's completely at odds with what um, their own president is going to be saying. I think the Republican Party has shifted. Keep in mind, it's now the Trump party of Trump, the Trump party. Uh, it, it, on trade issues, they've definitely shifted from where they used to be. You're right. They used to be the party of free trade, lower tariffs, more trade deals, including free trade deals around the world. Uh, we just have to think back to the George W. Bush era. Uh, it's not that long ago that this was the prevailing view of the Republican Party, but it's moved uh, in, in the interest of 
pursuing sort of the blue collar vote that Trump has received in, in the so-called Rust Belt uh, of the United States. And uh, I, I think they're still pursuing that vote this year, not not just for winning the White House, but also for winning both houses of Congress. And it's clear that's where the Republican Party is nowadays. So if you're looking for the party of free traders, it, it's not the Republican Party. And historically, it wasn't the Democrat Party either. It's just not the flavor of the month anymore in, in, in for U.S. trade policy. Mm, so if you do believe in free trade, and, and no tariffs, then there isn't really a party for you anymore in America. My, my advice would be to move. <laughs> okay. Has, has Donald Trump said anything about Taiwan, what his approach is going to be to Taiwan um, if he wins the presidency? There's a lot of speculation on that here in, in Taipei. Uh, again, I, I'll, re- I'll recycle the phrase I previously used, which is more of the same. But I think a lot of that will come not just from Trump personally, uh, it'll come from his aide. So there are people who think that Trump will just tr- treat Taiwan like a pawn and maybe sell it out to China in the interest of some grand trade agreement with China. Uh, but I think we have to look at who uh, will staff up political appointee positions in foreign policy, in the State Department, in the Defense Department in the White House National Security Council. I think a second Trump administration is going to have a lot of very pro-Taiwan people and people who are uh, going to look to punish China across the various policy areas, not just in trade, uh, but over human rights issues, uh, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, uh, religious freedom. And these people are going to be very, very pro-Taiwan. So although the government here will deny it, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in the coming months, I think the government here in Taiwan is definitely rooting for Trump uh, part two. Really? Okay. Um, so w- what's going to happen with Parliament? They've elected now um, a former presidential candidate from the KMT, haven't they, to be their, uh, their speaker? What does that mean going forward? That's right. The new uh, parliament or legislative UN, as it's formally known, uh, has a new speaker because the the Kuomintang or the Chinese Nationalist Party, they did they didn't win a majority, but they won the most seats, and this gave them the power to get their own guy elected as as the speaker. So, like in many parliaments, the speaker does have a certain amount of control over over the agenda and what what gets onto the floor for a vote. Uh, he he actually is a former legislator. Decades ago, he did serve in the legislative UN, so he has some experience in. He was briefly the mayor of Kaohsiung in 2019, but then he very quickly decided to run for president in the second half of 2019. He lost in January 2020, and then a few months later, he was recalled from office under Taiwan's recall procedure. Uh, he's perceived as being too too accommodating to China. He visited Hong Kong in, in early 2019 uh, when he was still mayor of Kaohsiung. He met with uh, various officials, including Chinese officials, and, and that eventually came back to hurt him in the presidential election and the subsequent recall vote. Uh, but how he will approach the day-to-day uh, business of, of Taiwan's legislature and the day-to-day uh, making of laws and hearings and things like that, it's pretty much a mystery. Uh, we're going into the Lunar New Year holiday. Uh, so I think the excitement there will start after the New Year, Lunar New Year holiday. We'll see what kind of speaker uh, Hong Goyu actually turns out to be. Is there things that the KMT and the DPP agree on and they could actually cooperate together on and, and work together on? Frankly, they agree a lot on on Taiwan's nanny state. They agree a lot on, and we saw this in the presidential campaign over the course of 2023, they agree on a lot of subsidies. Uh, There's a a huge amount uh, or huge call for subsidies across various policy, public policy areas. That includes child care, elder care, uh, 
after school uh, babysitting for kids, uh, housing, especially for young people, first time home buyers, a lot of cross party support here for all sorts of subsidies. So that, that probably gives an area where the parties could work together and pass some law and spend some more uh, public money on things that are just popular with the voters and the public. And this was particularly popular with younger people, wasn't it, in Taiwan in in the election, that they were um, really very concerned about low wages, low low income, lack of housing, um, and and so on. So these presumably are going to be popular measures for um, a significant part of the population. Sure. And, and again, it's, it's an area where I think the parties agree. I, I, they, they hate to admit it uh, because they, each party thinks it has a better plan for those things. And we saw that during the presidential election where the different candidates uh, would issue different plans. But ultimately, it comes down to subsidies and throwing money at the problem rather than coming up with a long term solution. So, again, I, I think we'll see some of that where there might be some significant differences of opinion and, and where there's some concern will be will Hong you and the and the. Uh, Chinese Nationalist Party with with uh, their plurality, will they slow down the pace of arms purchases, uh, typically from the United States? And that's really a, an issue of concern for those who care about national security type of issues here in Taiwan. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out. Is the fact that uh, there's now a KMT speaker, is that going to reduce tensions, do you think, with China and, and cool things a little bit? Absolutely not, because China policy is really within the purview of the executive branch here. So uh, after May 20th, when Lai Qingde takes office, I think we'll see, um, I wouldn't call it more of the same, the current relations. I think they, they will worsen a bit uh, unless uh, Lai Qingde dramatically changes his policy towards China, which at the moment uh, for him seems pretty unlikely. So I think we'll see more of the same come out from China or, or stronger. So uh Military exercises, the tempo might increase. Uh, there was a recent switch in relations from Nauru, so China might try to pick off Tuvalu uh, in the Pacific Island uh, countries, uh, and then maybe pick off another uh, country or two in the Caribbean. I think we're going to see more more tension going forward. Has, has China commented yet on on the results and the outcome of the election and the speaker uh, election and, and what they expect to happen? Uh, just rhetorical, you know, the usual uh, you know, Taiwan independence is a dead end and kind of uh, rhetorical warnings about uh, other countries supporting Taiwan. Uh, clearly, China did not like the congratulatory messages that some countries sent to Taiwan after the election. So China issued what's in diplomatic speak is called a demarche. They demanded that those embassies in Beijing come for a meeting where they got a talking to from China about interfering in internal Chinese affairs. So they didn't like other countries congratulating the people of Taiwan on successfully having a democratic election or William Lai, Lai Qingde's uh, election as president. So uh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I have to be a bit of a pessimist. I, I really don't see uh, China softening its positions on Taiwan. And I think it's highly likely that they will harden further. Okay, Ross, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for your thoughts this morning. That's Ross Feingold, who's Director of Research at uh, Cyrus Consulting over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk in the Year of the Rabbit. I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Simon Kavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. And with a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk.